Good morning, Point family. Uh, hi, um, I'm Calvin. I'm going to be reading the scripture today. We are Today we're reading Galatians 5.25 through 6.5. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Um, brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so you also won't be tempted. Carry one, another, one another's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each person should examine his own work, and then he will have a reason for boasting in himself alone, not in, and not in respect to someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Thank you, God, for your word. Um, we stand here before you gathered um, together and pray that you would just cut to our hearts. We thank you that we don't have to go alone. We thank you that we have each other. You made us for each other. You made us for you, for you, your spirit, God. And um, I pray that your spirit would fill us, and I pray that you would just turn our hearts toward you and open our hearts to hear from you this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Calvin, for reading the scripture. Great job. <clears throat> Morning. How's it going? I hear some good greats. That's good. Um, well, yes, as, uh, as we just read, we're in Galatians, and so I encourage you to keep your Bible open there. I'm also going to go ahead and tell you now we're not going to um, get as far as we plan today. Um, I think the Lord has... Uh, a little bit of a desire just for us to slow down a bit on, on a couple of things, and we're actually going to back up even a little bit. Um, we've kind of been working through the book of Galatians recently, and I felt like this, this, this week in particular, there was something specific that the Lord was speaking to me, I think he's speaking to all of us, that I think will hopefully help you walk in greater freedom. Um, we said that the theme of Galatians, one of the primary themes, is freedom, and, and so we're going to speak into that. Um, before we do so they don't distract, because I'm not sure, maybe, maybe this is just for my own sake, but some of you are probably looking at my face like, what is going on with his face? Does that look kind of weird, like a reverse raccoon up here? Um, when, our, when our boys turn 10 years old, I take them to on a, an overnight camping trip, and we talk about what it means to be a man and what it looks like to follow Jesus and really just to walk in purity and walk in, as a godly man. And so my uh, son, Cray, it was his turn and he wanted to go to the beach to fish for a shark, and so that's what we did, and uh, I had everything covered up except for right here, and, uh, and my sunglasses left a nice little, uh, little, uh, little white lines right here, so anyway, um, I was uh, really thankful for the time uh, with him, and it even made me think about this message today as we're t- teaching uh, about this idea of freedom, and specifically freedom in relationships. I was going to give the sermon a title today, it's going to be Freedom in Relationships. And I'll kind of explain a little bit more as we go, but I would dare say that most of us in this room don't walk in a lot of freedom in our relationships. Um, and what I even mean by that is I feel like we're enslaved to what people think about us uh, far too often. And maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. Maybe I'm on an island over here. I, I don't think that's the case. I think being human, there's a part of us that really wrestles with how people perceive us. 
how they think about us, how they view us. And Christians aren't exempt from that at all, right? But we do have an answer. We have a solution to it. And I think Paul addresses some of that in the text. And so we're going to talk about that because the, the book of Galatians, if you've been walking with us so far through it, and even if you haven't, let me just catch up to speed. While freedom might be this big high-level um, theme, really it's gospel freedom that we're talking about. And the Galatians is this incredible explanation of the gospel. It's, it's, it's really the Cliff Notes version of Romans. It's a shortened version of the book of Romans. And if you've never read the book of Romans, I highly recommend it. But you have to put your big boy pants on to read it, and you have to put your thinking cap on because uh, Paul gets, I mean, he gets really in the nitty-gritty of the gospel, okay? And goes to town on it, and it's awesome. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's awe-inspiring. And it really is stirring for our hearts in worship. But Galatians is just a shortened version in some ways. But again, he doesn't keep it at the 30,000-foot level. He doesn't just do a high-level flyover. He actually gives us some practical things to this. And I want you to know this, and we say this pretty often around here, but we never outgrow the gospel. We never, we never get beyond it, right? We never get more mature than needing the gospel. And the reason that's the case is because everyone in here, even as I was singing those songs and, and that last song we sang before, well, the one before the, the, the worthy of it all, um, before the throne of God, such rich theology. But if I can just be completely honest with you, I struggle to believe it fully. Like it says that we are righteous. It says that we are forgiven. It says we are redeemed. It says all these things. But the reality is in my heart, I still struggle to believe that in days and moments. In fact, sometimes we usually use this classification of well, Christians are the believers, and then the world's the, non- the non-believers. I don't know if you know this or not, but we're all unbelievers at some form, at some level. So I think we probably should stop using that distinction, because if we believed fully, we'd, we wouldn't sin, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't give in to temptation. We wouldn't give up on God. We wouldn't trust in ourselves. We would put our trust fully in God, and it would flow in everything else. But we're in process, and that's the beauty is. Even as we are Christ followers, we're now children of God. That's settled, we are righteous, we are, we're, we're acquitted, we're forgiven, but we're working on the process of actually believing more fully what that means. Does that make sense? Are we still with me? So, so I think that's the, good for us in our hearts to wrestle that out a bit. And Galatians is speaking into that because here's the thing. At one point in the book of Galatians, and y'all will probably remember this, we got to a sermon where Paul the apostle actually confronted Peter the apostle because he said, Peter, you are not living in full belief of the gospel. And it was specifically around the issue of prejudice and racism. So Peter wasn't treating the Gentiles good because he wanted to fit in with the Jews. And he was trying to appease his Jewish brothers and at the, at the expense of the Gentiles feeling like they were less than, right? And Paul confronts him. He says, he, I confronted him to his face and told him, you are not living in light of the gospel. So that tells me that the gospel has implications for all kinds of things, including how we view one another, right? And how we interact with one another. And if Peter needed to continue to know the gospel, I can guarantee we need to continue to know the gospel and learn how to believe the gospel, right? And by the way, all these letters in the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them. Every one of these letters, Paul is reminding them of the gospel, and they were already Christians. So he wasn't evangelizing them again, right? in a sense of trying to get them to come and put their trust in Christ and become children of God in that way, he was actually helping the ones who already had done that to understand how the gospel works, how it sets people free, how it opens our eyes and our ears to God's kingdom and the way that he actually operates 
and he wants us to operate. So that might not be news to any of you in this room, but for me, until I was about 28 years old, that was completely not on my radar. Because I thought the gospel was what you told people who were unbelievers, lost people, worldly people, so they could pray a prayer and come into the kingdom. But actually the gospel is profoundly, beautifully amazing to help us get free from the traps that this world has, the temptations of the enemy, the ways that we are immature, to grow up, to mature in the gospel, right? And we'll explain again more as we go, but it's specifically today, we've talked about how, you know, these gospel realities, they bring freedom in our lives, and they bring freedom from two primary things so far we've talked about. One is religious performance. Now, this for some of us is a little bit trickier because we think that um, to be a good human being, to be the best version of ourselves, if you're a Christian, it, sometimes you can, you can begin to think, well, that means to do all the religious things. Pray, read my Bible, go to church, right? Um, be kind to, my, to people around me, be a good person, just that generic be good. And what we've said and what Paul actually said is he says, listen, the gospel sets us free from the performance trap. It, it sets us free from thinking that there are these rules and regulations that if we check these boxes, then we get God's approval and acceptance and we're in. He says that's not how the gospel works because you can never earn your way into God's love. God gives us his, his love by, by, by grace. And grace means unearned favor, right? And so Paul is reminding the people at Galatia, listen, there's this other gospel that people are trying to preach, and it's not the real gospel. It's a gospel that's telling you that you have to do these things. You have to participate in these religious festivals, and you have to do these certain things like circumcision, and if you really want to be in. Now, thankfully, no one's up here preaching that today, right? But there are things that we add all the time to the gospel, and we've talked about that, and so I won't, I won't uh, elaborate on that because that's not the primary point of this message today. But we have freedom from religious performance, which we could call legalism. Seeking to prove ourselves worthy of God's love and acceptance by religious activities. The second thing that we've said, though, and this one's been lesser of a theme in this book, but it is important. And it's the theme of we've also been set free from rebellious indifference. Rebellious indifference. And this is really license. It's like, okay, you know, Jesus Christ died for my sin. I'm free. I can do whatever I want because he's going to forgive it anyway right? And there can be people who do that and become nonchalant, really drift into passivity towards holiness and set aside God's agenda and his desire and his calling to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, okay? So hear my heart. You're not saved by your works, but you are saved for good works. And so we should look increasingly like our Savior, but we do that because he is beautiful and he's worthy. He's not just useful. He's not just you know, going to get me out of a pinch. He's actually for me. He's not against me, and he is enabling me to live and walk in the freedom and the joy that he's called me to, but also to be fully human, to like really experience the fullness of what it means to be a human being on planet earth and all that he has for us. There is incredible, I don't know if you know this, guys. <laughs> Sometimes Christians, we're not really known for this, but there's incredible joy in walking with Jesus. There's incredible pleasure and delight in walking with Jesus. We think that the world and the enemy have the corner market on that. That is not true. That is not true. In the moment, people can, can get lured into and can buy into this idea, and you can have a temporary fleeting satisfaction in this world, but you will never have eternal satisfaction in this world. You will never have complete the joy that God 
created you for, designed you for, that can only be terminated on him. So, again, a lot there. We can't really speak into all that today. But today, we want to look at the freedom in our relationships, specifically how we relate with one another. And I want to back up just for a second and read from verse 13 in chapter 5. So if you have your Bible already open, just look back up to verse 13 in chapter 5 because we kind of skipped over this. It was at the end of a passage I taught. Didn't really say much about it, but I want to, I want to speak to it again. Here's what he says. He says, for you were called to be free. There's that freedom word, right? You were called to be free. Brothers, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, to use it for the sinful nature, to use it to do your own selfish-focused things, right? But serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? And we just can simply say that if we love our neighbor the way God does, the way he's called us to, we won't sin against them if we love them, right? That's how it's supposed to work. But again, we are in process, so sometimes we don't love other people, and therefore we treat them poorly, we dishonor them, we sin against God and, and hurt them in the process. But the gospel actually frees us from our self-salvation project so that we can actually live in healthier relationships with people. So we don't look to people now to save us, to give us the affirmation, the confirmation, the value, the worth, the security that we need. We actually get that from Jesus, from God. And as a result, now we're free to love people and not just need them in that way, right? And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. So as human beings, God longs for us to have healthy relationships. Because I don't know if you know this. Maybe you do. But if you go into your Bible and you read the very beginning of the story, human, hum, humanity, people, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we're the only people, we're the only creation that was created in God's image, right? And one of the primary things about being created in God's image is that we were created for relationship. I was meeting on Thursday mornings with a group of guys we meet on uh, just to talk about what biblical manhood looks like and how do we live out as godly man. And we were spending a little time on this creation narrative. And isn't it fascinating that in the creation story, it's, it's every time God creates something, he says it's good until he says one thing is not good. And what does he say? It's not good for what? Man to be alone. Is God, is, did God create human beings with a flaw? Kind of, kind of tricky question, isn't it? A little tricky question. He didn't create us with a flaw. He created us in his image, meaning that we were created for relationship. We were created for community. We were created to be together. And it's interesting how much the enemy tries to distort that and break that apart and how to, to break down community. We were created for perfect relationship with God, and we were actually created for perfect relationship with each other. And the gospel, what Christ did for us, doesn't just resolve the problem that we have broken relationship with God, it actually resolves the problem we have relationships with each other. Which means, FYI, and I'm learning this still, that my primary issue in my marriage to Jada, that my primary struggle is not actually here. It's actually here. And when this gets right, this gets fixed. Okay? So this is really important. I'm telling you, I think this is why we had to slow down today because I feel like the Lord is saying there are some of you who are trying to fix these things, and God's saying, look up and let me fix this so that I can fix this. So notice what Paul says. He says you were set free so that what? So that you could love one another. And I'm going to come back to what that even speaks to because there's something significant there in, a, in the following verse. 
But there's a problem, right, in our lives because we have this sinfulness, which is really just choosing our way over God's way. It's worshiping ourselves over God. It's being so focused on ourselves. And so we then think like, um, you know, we're, we're going to resolve this through, again, our own self-help process, through just trying harder, but it just gets worse. It just compounds because we need God. We need help. We need, we need God to rescue us, which he offers to, and he enables us to be set free from that, <laughs> that continuous cycle of failure. So look at verse 25 and 26, and this is why I wanted to say, because remember, the theme of Galatians is this freedom, this gospel freedom that comes, and specifically would say that the Spirit of God, okay, the Spirit of God who is fully God, that is deposited in the life of a believer, is actually working all this out for our good and bringing us into freedom. But in verse 25 of chapter 5, which Calvin read for us earlier. It says, since we live by the Spirit, this is assuming we are actually living by the Spirit, and if you're in Christ, you are living by the Spirit, maybe not great, maybe not as fully as you should, but, but the only way we're a Christian is the Spirit has set up shop in us, and we're a new creature. We're a new creation in Christ, right? So we're a spiritual being now in that way. Since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. There's sanctification. We're learning how to follow the Spirit. We are alive in the Spirit. Now we're learning how to follow the Spirit. You still with me? So he says, practical implication, nitty-gritty of the gospel. Here it goes. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, I want to just take a minute and talk about this idea of conceit because, I don't know, there's something about it when I hear it. It's kind of weird. I just want to give us some handles. I think it's important to understand what that even means. Um, I don't typically do this, but I'm going to give you, like, there's a word in Greek that's used there, and it's uh, kina doxoi, okay? And if you hear the back of it, if you know anything about Greek at all, which probably most of you in the room don't, you probably study Greek, that's the word glory, okay? And what he's actually saying, literally, is if you have a King James version of the Bible, you're going to see the word vainglory here instead of conceit, okay? You're going to see the word vainglory, which really still doesn't mean much to us in our modern world. Like, what does that mean, vainglory? I think this actually helps. It means empty of honor. It means empty of honor. Okay? It's a glory vacuum, if you will. So when we live outside of God's intent, we are living in a glory vacuum, meaning that we are sucking up, <laughs> obviously, everything around us trying to matter, trying to be something trying to prove that we are worth. Because you know what the word glory means, right? It, it involves weight, having weight, meaning like heavy, like there's a, there's a weight of it. God is glorious because he is, he is weighty. And when his glory falls on us, we feel it, don't we? We want to matter. We want to have weight. We want to be significant. We want to have, we want security. We want people to know that, we, that we're important. We want, to, we want to have purpose. I mean, Look at the world around us. We're all searching. We're all longing. We're all pursuing. We're passionate about trying to make ourselves matter. We want to make a difference in the world. We don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to waste our breath. We want to do all these things so that people see us and they're like, oh, man, they are so awesome. They are so cool. They're so neat. Whatever it is you want. What's that, 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 you know, that phrase you once said about you? They're a good person because we want to matter. And in this 
Paul is saying, don't be conceited. Don't be vain glorious. All right? And we should not get drawn into this trap because this conceit is, is deep insecurity. It, it's perceived absence of honor and glory. It leads to, to needing to prove our worth to ourselves and to others. And then when you do that, you start to fixate. You start to fixate on something that I think is actually one of the most joy-robbing sins in our lives. It's called comparison. Anybody been there? Anybody have that address? <laughs> I do. Way too much. It's comparison. It's when we actually start to basically look around and we see others and we go, okay, how do I stack up against them? How do I compare to them? And if there is one thing that will kill your relationships, it's comparing yourselves to others. And it's a pandemic. It's, it's a nonstop journey in our minds and our hearts because we're always wrestling like, how do I stack up in this space? How do I... How do people see me? How do they view me? How do I? And it's, an, it's, a, it's a joy killer because the whole time you're just simply thinking about yourself. Who you are, do you matter? Is there any weight to your life? So instead of doing what we should be, we are just thinking about ourselves. And this has been an interesting conversation with my kids, and it's, I'm sure it's a conversation in your house, but, um, you know, at some point as our kids get older, and we try to really build into, build into our children um, the things that we need to hear, too, which are like, hey, listen, you're, you're valuable to God, and he loves you, and he's for you, and all these things. But at some point, it comes along, and they, they really wrestle with, like, you know, how, what do people think about them? And one of the funny things is, I don't remember at what point I heard this or, or said it to the first one of our kids. I just said, you know what, listen, when you walk into a room, don't stress out about what people think about you because they're not thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves. Because they're in the same boat you are, and all they're thinking about is how are they viewed. Now, this sounds really, really like just bad <laughs> that this is where we are, but this is an issue with the human heart. We are wrestling this out. We are working through this, and we're comparing and competing even with others on a continual basis, and it does kill our joy, and it robs us of deep relationships, of healthy relationships. Now, again, just to give us a little precursor, there is hope, by the way. It's not hopeless, but I want to talk a little bit further into this because as we are spending our time trying to compare ourselves, um, we, we have this honor-hungry part of us, and we start to just really, it starts to consume us. It starts to, to take over our lives. And this really is where we are without the gospel, without the grace of God intervening. We will stay in that stuck state of just continually pursuing that. And when we are conceited, um, we'll, 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 we will definitely spend our lives trying to pursue the, the, the mattering to other people because we don't want to be ignored. We don't want to be ignored. Um, it's interesting, and you, brought, you guys have seen this, but a kid that's growing up, um, they, it's not so much that they don't want, that they want to, that they don't want to be criticized or that they don't want to be um, even told that they're, they're not good at something. They don't want to be ignored. And so think about it. Like, how many kids have you watched 
and I'm sure we've got some school teachers in the room, other people, they will do anything to get attention, even if it's negative. And it's like this, they, they, you know, there's, I remember hearing something about this in parenting, like when your kid really blows it, when they struggle, when they mess up, like don't go crazy, like don't go big on it and throw a lot of energy and emotion into it because what you're doing actually is feeding that desire to have attention. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't, you shouldn't acknowledge it and you shouldn't deal with it, okay? That's, and it wasn't my teaching, by the way. But <laughs> what I am saying is that when you, when you do start to do that, we've, we've noticed this, that, uh, that there's a way that if you can get tension, even out of, attention out of negative things, that's the human heart, the way it works, right? We just want attention, period. I would even argue to you that, and this is just a side note here, but as I was reading and reflecting on this, I think that hell is where people are ignored by God. I think that hell ultimately is when we are cast out and there's no attention from our God, creator God. I mean, just think about that for a second. What would it be like for the God who made us and created us to ignore us? Anyway, so in this conceit, we begin to compare and we ask the question, how can I get glory from you and you and you and you? And how can I get glory? How can I matter? How can I get approval, acceptance? And it's this weird deal that's going on in our hearts, kind of backtrack to all the, 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 the soundtrack of our, of our, in our heads and our hearts. And so we begin to, to work through that and find ourselves really struggling if we're honest. But notice what Paul writes here. He says, he doesn't just keep it at conceit. He says, we must not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And here's what conceit leads to. It leads to one of two paths. I didn't see this before because when I thought of provoking, I thought of like challenging or picking a fight. But that's actually not what he's saying here. The word provoke that's in here in this language is actually the idea of looking down on. It's being condescending. So what Paul is saying here is that one of the paths that comes out of conceit is that you look down on everybody as if you're better than them. And so you have this like, I'm up here, you're down here. And I derive my value from being better than you. I've got a better education. I've got more money. I've got more whatever. I've got status. I've got more gifts. I've got more abilities. Whatever it is, but you find a way. I'm, I'm more religious. I'm more holy. <laughs> I mean, in church, it eats churches alive when we have cultural holiness. We kind of compare ourselves to how we all are doing based on the boxes that we want to check and how many times we've attended something or how many good things or how much money we put in an offering plate. I mean, all these weird things start to creep in and we start to go, I'm up here. And so there's a provoking that is a condescending way of working through conceit where we're thinking about ourselves, and you might call this a superiority complex, right? And it's, we typically think of, of this, um, like I said, in, in, in this idea of challenging, but really it is a, an attitude of condescension. And so it's, it, John Stott says it this way, provoking is the stance of someone who is sure of his or her superiority, looking down on someone perceived to be weaker. But the other side of the coin is he says, not just don't provoke, but what? Don't envy. Now, if, if provoking is a superiority complex, envy is an infer- inferiority complex. And this is where people walk around thinking that it's humble to talk about how everybody else is so much better than them. 
And this is when you're not just looking down on people, you're actually looking up at people and you're upset about it. It's not like you're just looking up at them. It's like they're in your heart, you know you're upset because they are achieving something or they have something that you want and you don't have. And so in this particular space, envying John Stott, the opposite side of the coin, he says, envying is the stance of someone who is conscious of inferiority, looking up at someone they feel is above them. And I would say to us in our lives that if we are conceited, meaning if we are struggling with feeling like we don't matter, then we will either try to get that value from looking down on people or we will get it from looking up at people and we will kind of walk around in either a arrogant way or this weird underlying like I'm terrible nobody likes me you know I call it the Eeyore syndrome you know like I'm terrible right some of you guys know Winnie the Pooh <clears throat> so when we operate in these ways our relationships with others are a perpetual experience of comparing and competing and we are continually sizing up others to derive the value that we need and it's exhausting and I can tell you that in the modern era Social media has only amplified this by thousands because now we have so many more people to compare and compete with in the digital space. And what's crazy about it is in the digital space, we compare and we compete with things that aren't even true, aren't even real, that are edited, that are like painted in a particular way. I would say that the young generation coming up, guys, listen, this isn't me being an old fogey, like looking down. I'm saying like, you guys have a real challenge as younger people. Because the enemy is warring against you by using those means and meth methods to, to get you to just be thinking about yourself and how you stack up. So much that it consumes your every waking hour. And that's why we see, statistically, the, the studies that have been done show that the more people are on social media, the more depressed they become. Why? Because I want their life. I want their friends. I want their this. I want their that. It becomes this thing of envying. It becomes this thing of, I'm, how, I, I'm terrible. I don't have any of that. I'm, I don't have any value. I don't have any worth. I don't matter. Do you see it? And it's a trap of the enemy. And it consumes us. It consumes us. So look back up at verse 15 in chapter 5. This is an interesting thought. He says this, he uses a weird language here. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Let me just simply say it this way. The Christian life, he said above, he said that we are to, to, that all of it could be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. Love as a Christian looks like serving, giving, right? But love for the world, love in the unbeliever's heart looks like eating, devouring. What do we mean by that? When we are not walking as a Christ follower in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are not receiving our worth, our identity, our security from God, then we will consume other people because we need them so badly to prove that we matter. And this even happens in your marriage. It happens as a parent with your children. It happens in your workspace with your coworkers. It happens among your group of people you do your hobbies with. 
It happens in all of our relationships, and it's killing our relationships, and it's not a fruit of the gospel. It's a work of the flesh. Are you, are you with me? <laughs> I, I personally am feeling deep conviction in this today, so welcome to my conviction. Because reality is, there are so many jacked up things going on in my head and my heart because I'm not looking here, I'm looking here. So I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching with myself included in this, that we have an issue. And Christ has called us to love and to serve others, not to consume them, to use them for our own sake. So I thought it would be helpful. I saw actually a list of questions that Tim Keller wrote around this idea of how do we know if we're like envying and provoking one another. Maybe just some questions. You could take a picture of it and take it home, but here, here's the questions. Maybe you can ask yourself this afternoon. Um, do I have a tendency to blow up or do I have a tendency to clam up? We always say in marriage in particular, there's typically a powder and a shouter. Just a simple way to say the same thing. You know, a person who likes to just pout about it, go to clam version or a shouter. You know, I'm going to make sure you know how loud I am and get my point across. Do I tend to pick arguments with people or do I completely avoid confrontation? Are you one who provokes? you like pick, pick a fight? Are you one who tries to avoid it altogether because, you know, you don't want to enter in that space and feel inferior? You don't want people to not like you. Do I tend to get very down on individuals and groups of people, or am I more often embarrassed and intimidated around certain classes and kinds of people? It's an interesting thought. When criticized, now this one, man, this one, this one gets me. When criticized, do I get very angry and very judgmental and simply attack right back, or do I get very discouraged and very defensive and make lots of excuses or give right in? And finally, do I often think, I would never do, I would never ever do what this person has done, or do I often look at people and say, I could never ever accomplish what this person does? Do you see both sides of the coin? Okay. Now, I don't want you to get lost on that, but it is helpful to say, do I struggle with envy or struggle with provoking more? Okay, Christ, would you please help me? Would you expose, like, what are the roots under that? Would you help lead me back to where my true worth and identity comes from so that I can actually deal with this rightly. I mean, that's the next thing. But verse 26 that we read, it essentially is saying this. Do not let your hunger for honor, if we could simplify it, do not let your hunger for honor make you either despise or envy people. Okay? So what do we do? How do we break the cycle? Because there is hope. That's reality, and it's pretty bleak, the human condition. So how do we actually break the cycle? How do we not just sit around thinking about ourselves all the time, consumed with what people think about us? Thinking, oh, I'm better than them. Oh, I'm not better than them. How do we break that? Well, as we've already said, we've got to get our eyes up. We've got to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God. And that is a process, and we need help, and we need community, Christian community. This is why we say sermons don't get us there. Sermons help, but they're not even going to get us there. Sermons are just uh, getting it started, right? You, you have to be in community people who actually know you, who can help see some of these indicators where you're provoking and envying and becoming really conceited. We need space to work through these things. 
And it's a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson says. It's a process. By God's grace, one day we won't struggle with this battle anymore. But in this life, we will continue to have to work through it, which is why Martin Luther said all of life is repentance. So how do we break the cycle? The gospel, catch this, the gospel actually starts with the fact that we don't matter. I know that's a real exciting news flash, right? We don't matter. What do I mean by that? Well, first, we need to just come to grips with the fact that in our humanness, apart from God, we are done. We're nothing. We, can, we are nothing. We can do nothing. We need to come to the reality that the gospel calls us what we are, hopeless and helpless enemies of God. Dead is what it says. Dead in our trespasses and sin. So we know that Scripture tells us time and time again that if we try to pursue our worth, our security, our significance in this world, where it's going to be a dead end, dead end, dead end, dead end. Have you guys ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? It's depressing. It's depressing. Until you understand that there's some little nuggets in there, when you just kind of give it a read over, you're like, wait a minute. I pursued work. I pursued wealth. I pursued women. I, you know, they're all W's. I don't know another W, but I pursued all these things, and it's all vanity. Vanity, that's what he says. It's all vanity. Let me tell you something. If you try to derive your worth and your value from other people, a spouse, your kids, a boss approval, friendships, <laughs> you're going to be a very depressed person because eventually they can't live up to your expectations. They're going to let you down because they can be a good person in your life. They cannot be a messiah. And if you might make them out to be a messiah, you will crush them with your expectations. You will crush them. I've done it to my wife. I tried to make her out to be what she can't be, which is she can't be a Messiah to me. So in our lives, in our relationships, God is saying, I can set you free. Where you can actually love and enjoy a relationship rather than make it an idol. Enjoy relationships with others. You can actually serve in love and not devour one another, consume one another. The gospel tells us that, we have an, that, that while we don't matter in that sense, the gospel also tells us that we utterly matter beyond what you can imagine, that we are more loved than you can even begin to find. And in fact, we are more valuable than you can even imagine. Some people are like, wait, what? How can it say both of those things? Because it says on the one hand that we are more sinful than we can imagine, right? But on the other side, it says we are more loved. How do we know we're more loved than we can imagine? Here, here's the hope, okay? This is exciting. If everything else has been bleak, here's the exciting part. Because... The gospel is not good news unless you understand the bad news. And the bad news is, is you're done, you're toast, you're, you're out of commission, you are again shipwrecked when you're apart from God. But in Christ, you are a treasure. And not just to anybody. You are a treasure to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth. You're a treasure to him. And it changes everything. Listen to what Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says. And think about the language we've been talking about. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. There's that word again. But in humility consider others better than yourselves. 
Everyone should look not only for his own interest, but for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Now, here, catch this. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he what? He emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. You want to know why you matter, why you know as a Christ follower you matter? Because Christ died for you. He emptied himself of the glory that he deserves, that he is worthy of, that he will be and has for eternity, the weight that he has. He emptied himself so that we could be filled with glory and matter. He did that for us. He did that not because he had to, but because he wanted to. You and I are, more, are, are so jacked up and so messed up and so screwed up that he had to come and die for us. But we're so loved that he wanted to do that for us. He is so good. He is so gracious. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says. This came to mind this week as I was thinking about it. It's Isaiah 53. It talks about Jesus. It's a, it's a prophetic word 500 years before Jesus comes on the scene. He says, he grew up, like, up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't make an impressive form. Now think about how our culture tries to find their worth and their value from people. And notice what Jesus does. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. I would say our world is consumed with image management. We are consumed with it. We love editing and doing everything we can to make ourselves as look as good as possible. And Jesus, he came and there was nothing in him that was attractive and desirable in the, in the physical realities of who he was. He made himself that way. He could have come in and been like the sharpest dude and walking around like everybody's like, man, that guy looks good. Look, let's follow him, man. Like, I want to follow his thing. He's so good looking and he's so, so smart. And so like, it's incredible. Like if we understand about Jesus, he was just an average Joe. If anything, it says he was not attractive. He was not, he was not desirable to look at. What? Jesus? doesn't look like the blonde hair, blue-eyed, walking down the beach guy that I see on those paintings, which are all false anyway, okay? <laughs> Silliness. But it says he was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. Jesus knew what sickness was. The king of kings, the one who created, was there in the beginning, created the world, knew what sickness was because he experienced it. Jesus got a stomach virus. Probably. He got sick in some form. He understood what it was like to be a human, to suffer, to go through that. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to do that. It's an interesting thought. We kind of skip over this stuff, like forgetting that God, in the form of Jesus, experienced the pain and the hurt and the aches that we do. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Do you see that? Like, this is all the stuff that we want. It's the opposite. Everybody in this room, as a human being, myself included, we want people to like us. We want people to accept us. We want people to see that we're worth something to him. And yet Jesus became all these things. He bore himself, he, he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we, we in turn, we regarded him stricken. We struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. 
For our transgressions, he was crushed because of our sins, our, our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Is anybody else not stirred this morning? That he emptied himself and took on our garbage so that we could know that we matter. And we won't just matter for the fleeting breath that we have in this life, but for eternity. For eternity. How many times have you done something great, celebrated it, and the next day it was like, well, that's over now. Time for a new one. You achieve something. You experience something. People high-fived you and said, great job. And then the next day it was like, well, back to the drawing board. You ever heard the Tom Brady deal where he was interviewed right after Super Bowl and he said, hey, Tom, so how's it make you feel to win the Super Bowl? And he's like, I'm kind of empty. It's actually not all that I thought it was going to be. Why did he say that? And he's only one of many I've heard say things like that because you can get to the pinnacle of the human fame and glory and realize it's empty, it's vain. It's just not enough. Always got to search for something else. Always got to look for something else. Always got to go for something more. Because it's never enough. The Holy Spirit, thankfully, is working in us to apply the gospel. And it helps us understand who we truly are. It helps us see ourselves rightly and others rightly. It helps us have a whole new self-image. He creates this new creature and we have value and we have worth and we're no longer self-confident and we're also not self-disdaining. Not just beating ourselves up all the time because we stop thinking about ourselves. Like, wasn't it C.S. Lewis who said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's about thinking about yourself less. That's what humility is. To the degree that I'm still functioning in this idea that I have to earn my worth through my performance, to that degree, I will be working out this whole conceited thing, thinking I'm better than people or less than people. Because if I'm saved by my works, then I'll either be confident, but not humble, or I'll be humble, but not confident. But what God's gospel, what God's truth about us says is that we can be Humble and confident at the same time. Because we know we need God, and we aren't enough on our own. But we know with God we have all that we need, and he's enough. So when we're struggling with conceit that leads to devouring people through provoking and envying, we can preach the gospel to ourselves. Now, some of you are like, I'm not a gospel preacher. Yeah, but you're always telling yourself something. You're always preaching something to yourself, Right? If you're honest, stop. Your head's always saying something like, I'm not enough or I'm awesome. <laughs> uh, I don't know which one it is, but both of them are actually about you. Both of them, what I'm doing is about me. And here's what we can say to ourselves because of Christ, because he emptied himself, because he became nothing. He emptied himself for the glory. What you think of me is not the important thing. Jesus Christ's approval of me, not yours, is my righteousness, my identity, and my worth. And we can also say, what I think of me is not the important thing. I am just as much a sinner and just as undeserving of Christ's love for me as this person. Man, I, I love this song, Amazing Grace. I'm sure probably some of you in this room love it. But he says, Amazing Grace, 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the first part. We, we're screwed up. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see, right? That we have hope. We have joy. We have peace because we matter to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we are not going to be conceited thinking about ourselves and how we stack up all the time. We put our eyes on Jesus. We receive from him what our spouse can't give us, what our kids can't give us, what no one in this world can give us. They can help demonstrate it to us, but they can never give it to us fully and perfectly because that's only available in Christ alone, in God alone. And thankfully, there's a Holy Spirit that's confirming that and affirming that in the life of believers. So for some of you in the room, you might be here today and not be a believer in Jesus. You've heard about the story of Jesus. When we were singing that song earlier, that might have been a cool song. It sounded, sounded good, but it didn't really resonate with your heart because in your heart, you're not actually a believer in Jesus. You've not really become a new creature. You've not come to, new, to experience the love of Christ. So you're still pursuing love in other ways and other means from other people. Today, I invite you to get off that treadmill. Today, I invite you to receive the gift of his love for you. It is powerful. It is life-changing. It will change everything about you. For some of you, you are Christ followers, children of God, but you have been letting what people think about you and say about you control your life. For some of you in this room, you have literally let people that you don't even really know on social media run your life. Or you've let family members who do, you do know and you do love, and I'm just going to speak from my own personal experience right here. For years, until actually a year ago or so, I let my parents and their approval of me control so much of my life. And I literally had to go and speak to them and ask their forgiveness for idolizing their approval. And the Lord was setting me free, free to love them and not to consume them with my need for their approval. That's fresh on my heart, and I pray for every one of us in this room like we are free to be honest about where we really are because when we stack ourselves up against Jesus, none of us matter. But praise be to God, he says, I still love you, and I pursue you, and I bring you in, and I put my Holy Spirit in you, and you'll be with me forever. Let's pray. Father God, as I stop and think right now about my journey with you, um, gosh, I, I've spent so much time trying to earn your love, trying to prove myself worthy of your love, so much time trying to convince other people to like me, to approve of me, to accept me, and God, it's just empty. It's exhausting. God, thank you that you have gifted us value and worth, honor in Christ. And thank you that your approval for us, of, of us, is not based on our performance for you. But it's based, again, on the approval, the, the performance of Christ. I pray, Father, for this space today that your spirit would move among us and bring to light any places where we are weighed down 
where we are carrying this burden of trying to be something that we don't need to be. Father, I pray over this space today that you would actually bring people who've been living their life apart from you, trying to do religious works for you, earn their way, that today that you would bring them to faith. And I pray for others who have been living their life apart from you, just kind of doing their own thing, thinking that freedom will come if they just ignore you, and recognizing that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy their soul. I pray that today they would receive the grace gift of your salvation and begin to learn what it looks like to receive from you what only then you can provide. The love, the security, the significance, even the pleasure that comes in you. Father, I pray you bring some healing in this space today because there's some people who are, who are still seeking the approval of others so much that that person is controlling their life. They're running their life. And maybe even just some people who who need to turn off social media for just a little bit to get free from, like, the entanglement. I don't know. I mean, it's not a legalistic thing, but maybe there's just some ways that it's time to break off some chains. I pray for freedom in this place so we can love each other well, we can serve each other well, so we can walk in the power of your spirit as your children, your sons and daughters. Yeah. So thank you, God, for this time. We praise your name. Amen. Um, as we move on in this time, um, it's possible that, that some of you just need to be prayed for today to see that breaking off of those, those chains um, or just simply to ask God to help you because you just feel some emotions, but you're not real sure what it is right now. You just need some discernment about that. Then my encouragement is to find someone to pray with them. Um, a couple of us, a few of our leaders will be around. We'll be willing to pray for you as well. But you don't need to come to a leader to pray. We just want you to move, not just to sit still. And, and some of you know that, like, right now your relationships are a mess because you need people so badly to approve of you and to love you that you can't, you can't serve them. You can't minister to them. And so God wants to break that off so that you're freed up to love them and to serve them and to care for them. Um, yeah, so just whatever you need, we encourage you. If you want to sit, you can sit. If you want to stand, you can stand. But Aaron said it a while back this summer. It's still been resonating in my heart. Like, if we're going to see change, we have to make a step towards Christ. We have to make a step of faith, which requires physical movement. And I think that um, there's something significant about that. Whenever we actually take a step out, God meets us there. And so I encourage you not to stay still if God's stirring you, okay? Um, move about the room. Maybe God's put a word in your heart for someone else that's here. Maybe there's someone you, you feel like, their, mind, their, their, their name is on my mind and I can't get it off. I need to go pray with them. Or I need to go share something with them. Minister to one another. Let's love each other well this time. We're free to do that. Okay? So let's do that.